We continue on in our study in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. I know we have a handful of people joining us online, and I'd like to apologize for how quiet it is. There's not much we can do on our end of things. Um, the headset mic that we had been using, the cord on it got frayed, so we have another one on order, and it should be here within a week or so. Uh, so I'll try and stay as close to this as I can for, I know Walt and Karen, they join us online, Pastor Bailey does as well, and a handful of other people. So your job in the audience is if you see me start to wander, point at me and say, stay put, Pastor, because I need to stay close to this thing. But you know me, I like to move around. So we're in Acts, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12, I'll read down to the end of the chapter. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Achaldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen, chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Father, I pray your spirit illuminates our mind and our eyes and our wills to understand, to see, and obey the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Valentine's Day is quickly approaching. And for those of you who have dinner plans and have yet to make reservations, um, there is always that worry that without the reservation, you'll arrive at the restaurant of your choice and you'll see that there's a line. And you'll finally get your turn to go to the hostess or the host, and they'll look at you and say, I'm sorry. There's going to be a 
45-minute wait. And in that moment, you have a choice. You can say, let's go somewhere else where most likely it's going to be just as busy <laughs> as that restaurant. Or you can sit and wait the 45 minutes. Now, in that 45 minutes, the night of romance could very easily become a night of dread where, you know, your wife prods you and says, how come you didn't make reservations? I thought I, you know, I, I thought that was kind of expected. And you're kicking yourself because you know you should have made reservations, but you don't want to admit that your wife is right in that. And so you say, well, you know, and it spirals. And so by the time you actually get to your table, it's not a night of romance anymore. That time of waiting, that 45 minutes, that 30 minutes, that 15 minutes was crucial. And in that window of time, something transpired that completely changed the outcome of that night. We've all been in seasons of waiting in our lives, where in that season of waiting, where life doesn't seem to be going in really any direction, you're kind of going through the motions. You have the choice to just go through the motions or do what the disciples did in this passage while they were waiting. What we'll see from this passage is that God wants us to be diligent during our waiting seasons. The passage opens up just after the disciples had watched Christ ascend to the right hand of God the Father. And then an angel comes to them and says, why are you still standing here looking up into the sky? This Jesus, the one you saw go up into the sky, he's going to return in the same way. Essentially saying, you guys have work to do. And Jesus had just told them to go back to Jerusalem and await for the promise of the Father. Now you're wondering, what is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the coming comforter, the spirit of truth who will lead and guide them into all truth. The disciples, they probably had a very limited understanding as to what this would be. And surely, when Acts 2 rolls around, which we'll begin next week, um, they could not have imagined the outworking that would be worked through this coming of the Comforter. But between when Christ ascended and Pentecost in chapter 2, there was an extended period of waiting. And they began with obedience. They returned to Jerusalem, and it said they returned to the house they were staying. We don't know if this house was the very upper room said they went up to the room. And so it blends us to guessing, was this the very upper room that they had had the last supper in with their Lord and Savior? We don't know for certainty, um, but it's something worth considering that they were there in that place. Regardless, it had to be a fairly large place because we read that there were 120 people. <laughs> so it'd have to be, we fit well over 100 people in this room. So it had to be a room somewhat comparable to this if not larger. Um, and so they're there, but they're not just idly waiting for the Lord to send this comforter. What are they doing? It says in verse 13, or excuse me, um, verse 14, they all were joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The first way we can be diligent in our waiting is we pray. We pray while we wait. One striking point that you'll find and we'll discover throughout the book of Acts 
is that at almost every important turning point in the narrative of Acts, it begins with a mention of prayer. In Acts 1.24, which we are looking at right now, before the choosing of the twelfth apostle, apostle to take the place of Judas Iscariot, there's what? There's prayer. Before the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8, Peter and John are doing what? They're praying. Before the Lord's coming to Barnabas, excuse me, not, um, not Barnabas. I forget his name. No, not Thomas. I forget his name. Someone help me. Um, Acts chapter 9. Uh, Ananias. Yeah, Lord coming to Ananias in a vision. Before the Lord coming to Ananias, um, telling telling him, hey, you need to go to Saul because he's what? He's praying. This was just after Saul had been blinded on the road to Damascus by being confronted with Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 10, there is the Gentile Cornelius who is praying. And we read about three in the afternoon, Cornelius saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, he said, what is it, Lord? The angel said, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. And then he tells him that there is a man by the name of Peter lodging in his vicinity. And he says, hey, you, could go, you should go see this Peter guy. He may know a thing or two about what it is you seek. What we see throughout the book of Acts is that prayer always precedes a pivotal, amount, a pivotal event in God's working. And in our lives as well, we should see that as well. When we pray, number one, it moves our hearts toward others. It's impossible to pray for others without thinking about them. I mean, I say it's impossible. We live in what tends to be sometimes a rather brainless society where we do a lot of things without thinking. But I'd like to think that when you're on your knees petitioning the Lord for someone who may be ill, someone who's hurting, or you're praying about a job, you're praying about a loved one, a complete stranger, a co-worker, your children, that when you're praying about them, you're thinking about them. And when you're thinking about them, your hearts are moved toward them. And when your hearts are moved toward them, you're that much more inclined to be with them and interact with them. So prayer moves our hearts toward others. How many times have you been praying for someone and then you saw that person a week later and your heart was knit that much more closely to them and the circumstance they were going through than if you were just to see them and then go, oh yeah, I forgot this was going on in their life. That's what I get for not moving. I end up hitting things. When we pray, it moves our hearts toward others. But there's a supernatural element to prayer as well. And that is when we pray, it moves the hand of God. Over and over in Scripture, we see God working through the prayers of His people. We looked at Daniel chapter 7. And I think this is a great example of God literally doing an incredible work at the behest of one man's prayers. Jot it down if you want to reference it later. Daniel looks around and he says, it's been, been about 70 years in captivity. And God had said through the prophets that 
we were going to be restored in about 70 years. And so he gets on his knees and he starts confessing the sins of his people. And he starts praying that the Lord would do the work. And then God sends the angel Gabriel to him and says this, The Lord has heard your prayer and a word has gone out because of your prayer. That's a prayer of one man that yielded a dramatic event for much of the known world. And that's not just because Daniel was special. He was a Bible character. Of course, God answers his prayer. If you look at your own life, and if you're introspective enough in your own life, you can see God's hand being moved through your prayers, provided you're praying. Prayers move the hand of God. James remind us, reminds us that the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. And you may say, I don't feel very righteous. Friend, if you're covered in Christ's blood, you're as righteous as you're ever going to be. Christ has given you his righteousness and taken upon himself your sinfulness so that each person can say that they are righteous in God's sight through the work of Christ. So when you pray, when you pray in faith, James says, your prayers will be powerful in their effect. Prayer is the way we express our dependence on God. It is the way we say, God, I can't, but I know someone who can and who will if it is in fact His will. And that is how we need to conclude all of our prayers. We think of Jesus in the garden as the prime example where He prayed, if there be any way that this cup can pass from me, Lord, may it be so. And the cup he's talking about is a cup of God's wrath, which would be holy and fully poured out on Christ. But then he concludes that prayer by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And every prayer that we pray has to end with that submission because we are ultimately entrusting ourselves to him who knows better than we do. And you say, God, I prayed for this to happen in my life. I prayed for this deliverance. I prayed for this and... It's not happening. It's not coming. Maybe you're in a season of waiting. And maybe God is trying and testing your faith. And seeing whether or not you really trust Him in this season of waiting. That God doesn't work according to your timetable. But according to His own. And seeing if you're willing to trust Him in the season of waiting. In your seasons of waiting, are you praying? Second, we see the disciples preparing while they wait. And we can do the same as well. The disciples are using their time wisely. They're fellowshipping with others. It says that they're all together in one place. Surely there is a reminiscing of the Lord's ministry going on here. And just as after you experience something otherworldly, you think to yourself, did that really just happen? And you have to confirm it with someone else who was there. Maybe you met someone who you had looked up to your whole life. Maybe some iconic figure. Um, some person who'd been a huge impact in you either through their literature. Uh, maybe it was just you know, a, a, a 
a movie star or something, something that has no bearing on your spirituality at all, but you, you just seeing them was like, oh, one of those moments where you go, wow, I actually shook their hand, or wow, I actually saw them, and ah. Oh. I shared this a, a long time ago, but uh, back when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go to a WWE event that was held in, uh, held right in Bangor, and John Cena was there. Uh, anyone else ever at all, any point in their life, get interested in WWE? It's okay, no one's gonna shame you for it. Yeah, we know it's fake, okay, we know they're actors, you don't have to spoil it, we already know that. Um, but I had, I had been following WWE for a long time, you know, just watching John Cena, and he was gonna be there. So we were like, oh, this is gonna be great. So a buddy of mine who was just as obsessed at the time, uh, we got tickets, paid way more than we should have for him so we could be more toward the front. And we had an opportunity to be there, like front row, you know, when John Cena came out and did his thing and then raced down to the ring and did all the stuff. It's a lot better on TV because you're actually up close. Even though you're super close in person, it's so far away. But he actually, at one point, came out into the crowd and they were wrestling. And they were four feet away from my friend and I. And my friend at one point actually reached out and slapped John Cena's back. And he was like, I'm never gonna wash my hand. You know, and did that really just, and he probably should have because he was sweating, it's disgusting. But, it was that moment of, did that really just happen? Whoa. And surely, there was a lot of that going on in this upper room, only magnified by a billion fold, because they had been in the presence, they had witnessed the miracles. Surely, there was already writing. People were writing down, you know, writing down things. I love how in The Chosen, you have Matthew already writing things down, because that seems pretty accurate to when you read Matthew. You're like, yeah, he seems seems to make all the connections. Um, surely there were things being written down. They're fellowshipping with one another. And it's not a mindless chatter, or it's not filled with destructive gossip. It's purposeful. They're preparing for when the Comforter will come. They're fellowshipping with others, and they're studying God's Word. I love the reference that Peter pulls out of Psalms. He, he pulls out two Psalms. And it's just like a line from each song. I love the way they handle God's word. In, in the, I love the way Paul handles God's word and Peter handles God, God's word when you're reading scripture. Because it is not like how they teach it in any hermeneutics class, in any seminary you go to today. Because the way they handle it makes you go, how did they get that from there? You know, in hermeneutics classes, they try to teach you how to interpret and understand God's word rightly. They try to teach you not to go off way out in left field in your interpretation of a passage, which generally is a good thing to do. Say what the passage says and apply it. But here you have Peter pulling from two different texts. God forbid we were to do that. And not, only, not even reading them in context, but pulling them out and applying it to a very specific situation. Namely, Judas being, um, you know, Judas betraying, and then Judas being replaced. Listen to what he says in verse 20. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So if you look at the first Psalm, which is found Psalm 69, um, the actual version in the Masoretic, which is the Hebrew uh, version of what we would call the Old Testament, and the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, they both have the word they. So they, it says, may, 
may, excuse me, there, may their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And so Peter took all of that, even though it said there, as in like multiple people, he applied all of that to Judas. Now Peter's an apostle. I'm not going to question his interpretation at all. I think he knows what he's talking about. They were studying God's word intensely and intently. There wasn't just mindless chatter going on in this gathering. They were digging deep. They recognized that so much in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And it's as though they opened up the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, and they said, where's Christ? Because I know he's here. And they poured over it. And everything that seemed to have some reference to Christ, they're like, there he is, there he is, there he is. And they're also looking at the circumstances in his life, namely Judas betraying him. They were digging deep. And friends, in our seasons of waiting, are we digging deep in God's word? It never ceases to amaze me that I've encountered people when they find out I'm a pastor. I don't wear it on my sleeve. I won't mention it unless people ask me. Um, It's not something I parade around on. I don't wear a badge that says Pastor Dre Mackey. I'm just not just the way I float. But if people ask me, you know, I'll say what I do and who I am. And there have been a number of times where people who I know are not Christians, they'll say such things as, I've read, I've read the Bible. And I know they may have, but did they really read it? Let's say I were to tell you, you were a mathematician, all right? You had your PhD in some crazy form of mathematics. And you were to come to me, and I were to find out you were a mathematician, and I were to say, ah, I did Algebra 1, or I did Pre-Calculus. I read it. I read the textbook. What, in, that, in my answer, does that say more about me or about the mathematics? It says a lot more about me than it does about the mathematics. Um, I know, some people who are like, I hate math. No, math is evil. Well, I I get it. I'm kind of there with you. Um, But when people respond in that way, there is an element of, okay, I've I've read a pre-calculus textbook. It didn't do it for me. You read it, but did you understand it? You know, there's a big difference between the two. So when people say, I've read the Bible, okay, you read it, but did you understand it? Because at this point in my life, I read a lot of it a lot of times, and I've read some of it lesser times, much lesser times, and I still don't get it all. And it's going to be an endless journey of growth and understanding. So are we willing to approach God's word in a spirit of humility that even in my 70, 80, 90 years I'm blessed to live, I won't fully understand God's word? There'll be parts of it that are just beyond me. How does God's sovereignty interweave with man's responsibility? Oh, man. But that shouldn't stop us from trying to go further up and further in, in the words of Lewis. We can prepare while we ate. Oh, ate. You can tell where my mind is right now. We can prepare while we wait. Third and finally, we can be purposeful while we wait. We see here um, that the disciples were straining their hearts 
and their wills and their minds toward the Lord. They were spending time together. They were studying his word and they were saying, okay, God, there's, you want us to be doing stuff in this season right now. You know, it can be so easy to slip into a form of autopilot in our seasons of waiting, where we drone onward, where we're going through the motions of our existence. We don't, we don't maybe feel the power of God in ways that we felt in the past. And we go, okay, I guess this is just a season of waiting, so I'll go into autopilot and wait till God re-enters my life. Friends, God gives us these seasons of waiting to be seasons of preparation and seasons of purpose. We've heard the saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. It applies to a lot of things in life. It applies to mathematics, for instance. It applies to language skills. It applies to just life skills in general. If you don't use it, you lose it. But I think this can be adapted when it comes to making purpose. That if we don't choose it, we lose it. That there's purpose to be had in our lives. But if we just go into autopilot, then we're going to lose it. And we're going to have a sense of waffling purposelessness. Go, why do I feel like I'm just floating through life? One very practical thing I found very helpful, because I, I make a lot of my own schedule. Some of you know that I do part-time work on the side. And a lot of times, part-time work can end up being full-time work, especially when you're self-employed, because you're always thinking about it. Um, but I found it immensely helpful to do to-do lists the night before. Because otherwise, it's so easy to waste time. Where if I have a to-do list, I have the night before, and when I wake up all bleary-eyed, I'm like, okay, I just need coffee. I can look at my to-do list and say, okay, there we go. I don't have to think through what I have to get done. It's all there in front of me, so I can just do it. And hopefully be present in the moment while I'm in it. We'd all love to be motivated by sheer desire alone. Wouldn't that be great? if your own gumption would power you through everything in life. But sometimes we need those external structures and we need, that, um, we need that accountability and that friendship to keep us motivated and moving forward. And friends, that's part of the Christian community. That's why it is a community. We're not there to you know, hit each other over the head, but to urge each other onward in our walks with the Lord? Are we being purposeful while we wait? Or have we fallen into passive obedience? Remember, God has never once desired passive obedience. He's always desired purposeful obedience, the kind that comes from the heart and a desire which longs to grow in Him. Are we purposefully confessing our sins to Him? Are we purposefully leading our families in worship of Him? Are we purposefully looking for opportunities to be involved in church, to be lights in our communities? Are we purposefully being a witness for him? We see the disciples here yielding themselves to that purpose in choosing another disciple to take the place of Judas. We can be purposeful while we wait. What are you doing during your season of waiting? Are you praying? Are you preparing? Are you being purposeful? Or have you started to grow complacent? God will move. In fact, God is probably moving in your life right now. You just can't see it. Think about the thousands of years between God's promise of redemption and its fulfillment in his son a mere 2,000 years ago. 
Hear the Apostle Paul's words. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Even prior to the incarnation of Jesus, God was filling up the time until the very moment that it would overflow with redemption. Why can't God be doing this exact same thing in your life right now? That he's filling up the time. He's filling up the time until it overflows with redemption, with renewal, and with a reason, with purpose. At that moment, you'll think back on your season of waiting and say, I get it now. It makes sense. Thank you, God. God wants us to be diligent during our seasons of waiting. Father, we thank you that we have your word, which can lead us and is sufficient to lead us and guide us into all truth. God, each one of us experience the sometimes painful seasons of waiting where we've yet to see your promises come to bear in our lives. I pray that you be with us in those seasons, that you meet us in our weakness, you sustain us, you motivate us to move further and further into your love. And God, we be honest if we're hurting, if we need help. And God, if a fellow member, fellow friend, a fellow Christian is in that season of waiting and is struggling, that you help us to come alongside them and not, Lord, not, not come down on them, but to come alongside them and help lift them up. Thank you for this time we could spend in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.